Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. After a week's vacation, we are back with another edition of the VanCast. A few hours ahead of Game 6 of the Western Conference Final, Dallas won the last two straight after being down 3-0 against Vegas. They're trying to do it the... Boston Celtics are trying to do in the NBA. That series was 3-0 at one point. Now it's 3-3 going into Game 7 also tonight. But, of course, we are here to talk about the Latvian national hockey team. No, uh, the Vancouver Canucks. Latvia, could you imagine? You think they have a, a podcast harm just dedicated to the comings and goings of hockey players from Latvia in the NHL or in the World Hockey Championships? Well, they might not. But what they did do is I saw an article that was circulating on, um, on both Twitter and Reddit which said that the Latvian parliament had um, had passed, I don't know what exactly it's called, a bill or a law, to make uh, today, May 29th, a national holiday in uh, in honor of Latvia winning bronze at the IIIHFL uh, World Championships because it's the first time Latvia's won a medal. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not talking about just a day off today. You're talking about an annual national no, holiday as opposed just, to just a day off today? No, not annual. Okay, okay. How about the pictures? Like over 50,000 there right now in their, in their town square ready to celebrate. So c- certainly there won't be any level of celebration for Canada winning gold. And when you look at what is remaining in the Stanley Cup final, and Rob Williams pointed this out on the Daily Hive, there'll probably be a bigger celebration for this than there will be for the Stanley Cup final this year. Whoever wins the Stanley Cup, like Vegas, Dallas, or Miami, for real? Yeah, and this is why it's it's great for the game because, look, if the Americans had won bronze, nobody cares down south. Realistically, let's be honest, but for Latvia... Nobody cares if they won gold. Exactly. Let alone Canada, nobody cares if they win gold. Like, let's be real. No fair. And this could go a long way, right? I mean, think about how many little kids in Latvia are watching Archer Silovs absolutely go off and all of a sudden want to play hockey now, right? Like, that's the sort of thing that can really get a nation into it and... It could, it could have an impact years later. I mean, how, how many people would have thought that, for example, a player like Leon Dreisettel would have ever come out of Germany, right? And this is what happens when the game grows beyond uh, the typical sort of countries that we associate top uh, top guys to, to come out of. So I think it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely phenomenal story. Yeah, it is. And I want to get into the Silovs part of it in a moment. And then there's other elements as far as the Canucks are concerned, including Tyler Myers, uh, saving receipts uh, on, the, on the tweet regarding this being the worst version of Team Canada ever that uh, ultimately went on to win gold. Um, let's uh, let's just make sure the VIPs knew we were at one point planning on doing a mailbag for today's show, but you know we b- both have been away. Uh, I was in Ottawa for much of last week, and I, I know you've uh, been been living the life of harm, the summer of harm, as it were. So. We had planned to do a mailbag, but we didn't really give our VIPs enough of an opportunity 
to dive into that, right? To we give him about 90 minutes to, to get some questions. And so uh, we're probably not going to do that today, but uh, our next edition of the VanCast, we will give our VIPs more than enough time to answer questions. Uh, we do have a couple that did come in. We will answer those uh, probably in the second half of our show here, but we do want to give the VIPs, even in the offseason, plenty of time to discuss that uh, and to just get their questions in, whether it be draft-related, free agency-related, uh, anything specific to any given player, all of it. We do want to get give our VIPs that opportunity. But um, for today, there are still a few topics. And, you know, you, you talk about Artur Silovs. Now, we've been impressed with his play here in Vancouver. We've certainly been impressed with his play in Abbotsford. But there's been a real debate about how to best develop Silovs into the, the best player that he can be. And when you look at the Canucks situation next year, they've said that they're not going to be able to go out and afford a veteran backup. And whether that means a Spencer Martin, who found his game when he got sent back to Abbotsford this year, uh, whether it's figuring out something with Colin Daly, or whether it's Spencer Martin, or, or not Spencer Martin, but Silovs, or a combination of a couple of those guys, including Silovs, which the Abbotsford logistics allow you to do you know we we put that out there that you know can you get into a scenario where um Silovs plays 10 to 12 games then gets the heavy workload in Abbotsford and then whether it's Martin or, or Delia get the other 10 or 12 games and then they're also involved in Abbotsford but you can you can set that up accordingly barring any injury of course to Thatcher Demko um you know, you know, that is being a possibility. But now as you look at what Silovs did, and you can't say that these weren't high-pressure games, because guess what? For Latvia, they were incredibly high-pressure games. You look at that celebration today, you look at the celebration in the arena after they won the bronze medal, don't tell me the weight of a nation wasn't on that young man's shoulders. And he did face a lot of NHL-caliber shots, right? So he's not facing McDavid on a nightly basis, but he's facing legitimate players in meaningful games with big time pressure, and he is handling it exceptionally well. So does that change in one way or another what the Canucks should be thinking in terms of his deployment? We know Thatcher Demko is the goalie of the present and the goalie of the future, but they've got a big time asset here. How do you best position the asset? And does what we've seen at the Worlds affect this at all? I don't think it should just because from my perspective, getting him into a ton of playing time for next season should still be a priority because you look at Seelovs' last three years since the pandemic combined, he's only played 76 league games to me. And, and you keep in mind that the vast majority of those 76 were last season. I don't think it's a coincidence that the big development strides that he took this year coincided with him playing a lot. And so because of that, I'd want to help carry that momentum forward and ensure that, okay, sure, like you'd mentioned, because of Abbotsford's proximity to Vancouver and because Silovs is exempt from uh, waivers, meaning you can move, shuttle him up and down without uh, any problems, you can get him into NHL games here or there. But I still want to make sure that he's in a position to start a lot of games in Abbotsford. If, if I was in the Canucks' shoes, just because for goalies, playing a lot and developing that type of way is really crucial. I mean, you think about even, for example, Thatcher Demko's uh, ascent from when he when he got into Utica and how long it took him to graduate to the level of being Jacob Markstrom's backup. He spent uh, two and a half years in Utica. Silovs only has one under his belt. So for me, I'd like to see him 
still getting a heavy dosage of starts in Abbotsford, especially because you look at, and this is where I think it's a positive when you look at the Canucks' goaltending situation beyond Demko and how it's trended in the last sort of two, three months. Spencer Martin went on an absolute bender down the stretch, both in the regular season and in the playoffs. He was actually better than Seelops. When you look at the last, I think, 12 regular season games, because only ended up because of how late he was sort of sent down. I think he only played 16 regular season games for Abbotsford. But in the final 12, so after four so-so starts, final 12, I think he had a 935 save percentage. And then in the playoffs, he played four games and he had a 929. He was unreal for Abbotsford. I mean, both goalies were, were really good, but Martin was was exceptional as well. So that at least gives you a little bit of confidence that, okay, if you want to be patient with Silovs and ensure that he's still getting some games in Abbotsford as opposed to being the full-time backup and you're only getting 20 games or so behind Demko, that Martin can can at least give you some level of, of NHL games, hopefully. So that that would still be my approach despite this outstanding per- performance at, uh, at the Worlds. Yeah, you know, for me, I just don't think anything's changed because I've kind of been that guy that's lobbied for the same thing. Give them, give them the heavy load there. Make sure he gets a meaningful number of NHL games, but the bulk of his work is going to be in Abbotsford. I don't know that this needs to change that. But big picture, how do you view this, right? And I'm not suggesting for a second that Silovs eventually is going to surpass Thatcher Demko as the number one goalie in Vancouver because Demko's just too young for that right now. Like he's just getting started in my estimation. So. You know, do you, what's what's the time frame on this level of experiment? Obviously, injury changes all of that at a moment's notice. Um, you know, and, and we know that goaltending can be fickle, and we found that the first half of this season with Demko. And we know that that injury, or at least mental effects of an injury, did play a part in all of that. But is this something that you 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 kind of hope just? Do you let it kind of take on a bit of a life of its own because there's just no prediction or no guarantee in terms of what might happen to maximize Silov's value, right? Because if he just stays in this holding pattern, because Demko is not going to necessarily put you in a position to change said holding pattern, right? Like barring injury, Demko could be this guy for the next three to four years. So what's the sweet spot in terms of developing and maximizing an asset? Because if Demko gets hurt and Silov's has to play... 30 games at any given point, and now you change the narrative on him, but you can't predict that. So barring an injury, what's the what's the thought process for the organization going forward into Silov's best path? Right. So for starters, it's important that you mention goalies are, you know, fickle. And so you need to, in the back of your mind, bake in some level of flexibility that things, you know, for better or for worse, may not go exactly how you plan. Looking at it right now in, in May. And obviously, a lot can change between now and uh, and when we get to the actual games. Maybe you look at a scenario where it's like next season, perhaps he spends most of the year in Abbotsford, plays some NHL games, but most of the year in Abbotsford. If he has a great year, then the year after, you can look at look at him and go, okay, we can graduate him to the NHL as a full-time goalie. And I don't think you have to be too worried about, well, if Demko's a guy moving forward, if he's, if he's still not only the goalie of the present and also the goalie of the future – then what would you do in a scenario where, where Silovs really takes off and um, and is showing the potential to be more than just a backup quality uh, NHL NHL goaltender? Because what we've seen from these playoffs and just in general is that you need at least two goalies to um, in today's NHL. Like that's the trend we've noticed where 
with a lot of um, you know workhorse starters. I mean, it was Drancer that in, that initially pointed out, for example, that goalies who started at least sixty games in the regular season this year went one and four in the opening round, and the only one that made it through, Jake Ottinger. It's obviously been really good for Dallas in the last couple of games, but, but overall, it's been a really inconsistent showing for him in the playoffs. He only has a 9-1 save percentage, right? And you think about Ottinger in the playoffs, for example, last year, and he was Herculean in the first round. He almost single-handedly won them that, uh, that series against Calgary, and that, of course, came after a regular season where he only played 48 games, right? So even with Demko moving forward, It'd be, I mean, let's say like two, three, two, three years down the road. If if Seelovs is, let's say, a goaltender who we look at and go, we can give this guy, let's say, 25, even 30 starts. That's, if anything, good news for Demko because all of a sudden he has to, he, he he's fresher throughout the regular season, fresher if the team ever makes the playoffs. And I think that would be a, ben- a benefit once you consider that, okay, we have seen a little bit of an injury history with Demko. And um, and that could not only help him stay fresher between like in the middle of a season and, and throughout the playoff run, but also big picture in terms of extending his career uh, as a, as a starter. And we've seen this with Vancouver over the years, right? I mean, when they had Luongo at the peak of his powers, they had Corey Schneider coming in and they had to figure that out. When they had Jacob Markstrom playing exceptionally well, they had Thatcher Demko ready. And there was a point in time where Demko basically forced the organization's hand to make sure he was at the big club full time, right? Even though there was a case to be made uh, the first year he was full time here that maybe more games still in the minors was going to, was going to be beneficial. So we've seen it before and it can work and it can still allow both goaltenders to thrive because you know, for a variety of reasons, you just don't know which way it's going to go. And you just hope that the personalities mesh as much as humanly possible to allow it to work like it did in those previous situations that I mentioned. Sticking with the worlds, let's talk a bit about Team Canada and and Tyler Myers and Ethan Bear and Myers, who played a lot, played in all 10 games of the tournament, played, uh, you know, in the 22 to 24 minute range in the final. Um, Ethan Bear played in eight of the 10 games, actually was a, was a healthy scratch, if I'm not mistaken, for the final. But Myers put out a tweet just saying the worst Team Canada in history, right, along with their gold medal celebration. So what do you make of the performance of the Canucks and just Myers' take on it all? Yeah, so I think for, before I get into that, I also quickly want to mention, because I did sort of watch um, a bit of, you know, some of these world championships and, and seal off specifically. And, and I just wanted to point out at least one observation in terms of when you look at how well he played and how dominant he was sort of like what stood out to me. I think it was interesting that, you know, like we knew in situations where he like overall, he was calm and sturdy, positionally sound. And that was great to see because when he was sort of drafted as a six round pick, a lot of times you'd look at him and go, this is a player that needs a lot of work in terms of the technical technical side of his game to sort of settle settle him down and build some more structure uh, and, and foundational habits. So it was good to see a lot of those. But what I think differentiates Seelovs and gives him such exciting potential is that in situations where he he did end up out of position, and a lot of times it was not his fault for being out of position, right? It, it may, may have been a phenomenal crossing pass. It may have been a, an odd, um, an odd sort of bounce off the end boards or 
uh, a block shot and it ricochets in in a weird direction that nobody could have anticipated or or even rebound opportunities what you noticed was this explosive lateral movement and athleticism that you typically expect from a smaller goalie and Silovs has that level of athleticism despite being a 6-4-4 goaltender right so it's like that combination of the size and the explosive lateral movement especially when it comes to taking away the lower half of the net with his pads that consistently stood out to me he, he made a he made quite a few desperation saves where the puck is moving east west and he's last minute just able to extend that pad as far as he can to keep the puck out like that was enormously um impressive now obviously in terms of you know team canada and myers i think like fair enough right go off go off they they won that tournament and you're right there was a lot of the wow like what a what a weak roster i think the caveat to keep in mind is and i think this also applies when you look at you know Silovs's performance a little bit just to just as a just as a qualifier is that i think across the board when you look at various uh various countries most of the rosters were weaker than uh, than you usually get, right? You look at, for example, Sweden, because I was curious since uh, since Latvia had uh, had upset them in the quarterfinal. So this year's this year's Swedish roster had Lucas Raymond, Rasmus Sandin, and then in terms of like high end NHLers, that was it, right? I think I think you had like Liljegren and Zet Fabian Zetterland and Carl Grundstrom is like okay you know, more middle of the pack type NHLers, like you still had some of those. And of course, Leo Carlson, but outside of that, you really didn't have many high end players. Whereas you look at, for example, last time, you know, Elias Pettersson in 2018 was, uh, was playing for Sweden at the Worlds. That roster had Pettersson, Philip Forsberg, Mika Zibanejad, Mikhail Backlund, uh, Adrian Kempe, Prime OEL, Ricard Raquel, uh, Hampus Lindholm, Matthias Ekholm, Prime John Klingberg. Like the list went on and on in terms of, um, you know, that these rosters, um, a lot of the top guys that did get eliminated from the playoffs immediately sort of joining. Whereas I think this year, you clearly saw, I mean, Pedersen himself, because of insurance reasons, wasn't able to go over. And we just didn't see the same level of, uh, of top end talent. But, um, you know, I don't mean to, to bring that up to, to sort of rain on the parade because, Myers was was really good in that tournament. He uh, he played a lot of minutes. Uh, we saw him have some offensive uh, flashes, and uh, he played an important role on that blue line in um, in helping Canada win uh, win gold. So good good on him, and uh, that's uh, some nice momentum to have going into uh, the offseason. Absolutely, uh, and, and a lot of that happens with selected players, right? Where the season may not have gone the way they wanted. Maybe they were injured for big chunks of the year, and they were able to finish the season, uh, finish the season strong, and kind of take that mindset into the next year. A lot of these guys wind up with completely different roles uh, when they get to this point because they they might be a little farther down the lineup on their existing teams, but now they've got to play uh, much more meaningfully here in this tournament, and that kind of gives them a, a bit of a mindset switch going forward, knowing that maybe they can do more with a bigger role. As we get back to the current Stanley Cup playoffs, you know, one of the one of my favorite things, Harm, is just getting a chance to to tweak Thomas Drance on a variety of topics, including the whole anything can happen, because you know it's killing him. So he's got to be the most conflicted guy in hockey right now, because Florida, his beloved Panthers, which are second only to his beloved Maple Leafs, are in the final for the second time in their history. And it does lead 
credence to the narrative that anything can happen. And so that's just got to be gutting to him. So we'll talk about that. And if you buy into the Florida Panthers as an example of anything can happen, what that tells you about the Vancouver Canucks. We'll talk about that. And again, we did get some uh, some good questions from our VIP. So we will touch on that as the VanCast continues. Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking a W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game-changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Just want to remind you that my appearance here on the VanCast is powered by my good friends at Key West Ford in New Westminster. So the Florida Panthers, the same Panthers team that needed a Chicago upset victory over Pittsburgh in the second to last game of the regular season, the same Florida Panthers team that was down 3-1 in games to the Boston Bruins and needed a late goal to go into overtime and somehow keep their season alive is now on an absolute roll and in the Stanley Cup final with their feet up poolside awaiting a winner in the Dallas Vegas series. So the, you know, the, the anything can happen base is suggesting these guys are living proof that just get in and you can make a run. That's just the way it goes. And certainly the NHL is feeding into that narrative and you've got GMs and quotes from others around the league saying, yeah, you know, you just got to get in and that's the goal. And, and it, on the other side of it, Drancer and company are talking about, Hey, look, this team was the president's trophy winner a year ago. And you know, here they are. Like, are they really that different? Were they just a team that scuffled along during the regular season? And probably the, the truth lies somewhere in between because you can't scuffle your way to needing that level of help just to get into the playoffs. There were some flaws. And also, when you make a trade that brings in a player like Matthew Kachuk and you get rid of a player like Jonathan Huberdeau and Mackenzie Weger, that fundamentally alters your franchise. Like, that's not a tweak. That's not a nibbling around the edges. That is a massive, massive move. And maybe it took some time to figure that out. But the core of that roster, Huberto aside, was still intact. So where do you sit on the anything can happen versus the regular season was an aberration? Yeah, I think, like you said, it's somewhere in the middle for me because I think we've seen over time with the NHL playoffs, right? And the the most you know the the most relevant example before this year's you know Florida taking down Boston that comes to mind is when Columbus swept Tampa I think it was in the 2018-19 season after Tampa had I think like a 60 plus win season and we were talking about Tampa the same way we were talking about Boston and everybody expected Tampa to just run through everybody and win the cup and then they got swept by John Tortorella's Blue Jackets right and I think that's an eye opener that hey Compared to, let's say, the NBA, there are a lot more upsets in the NHL playoffs. And that's exactly why it takes some teams, when you look at Washington, for example, or St. Louis, it takes them many kicks at, kicks at the can just because there is more unpredictability and you can have more upsets. Having said that, yeah, because Florida won the President's Trophy last year, they're also not the the, the typical sort of um, eight seed. And, and I should also mention, I think Seattle sort of getting to, uh, getting to this point where 
they took Dallas to seven. I think that's and that's an example too of like, you know, I, if, if anything, I think that's the more relevant example of like a team sort of. Um, I shouldn't say more relevant, but m- the point I'm trying to make is Florida's at least a team where you could look at and go. Not only did they win the President's Trophy last year, but the year before that too. Um, they w- they finished really high in uh, in the standings, whereas Seattle. Seattle more than anything like I I looked it up just now Florida finished fourth in the regular season even in the 2021 um, regular season so if you're a team that for example missed the playoffs missed the playoffs this year like the Canucks and you're hoping to sort of get back into it and maybe go on a bit of a playoff run if anything Seattle's a better example because Seattle was awful last year and then they come out come out here and take down the defending Stanley Cup champions which nobody expected and um and um you know they they were a lot more um you know thrilling than than people expected so but yeah i think with uh with florida for me what's most encouraging from a Canucks standpoint actually is how they found success despite in the regular season being pretty flawed defensively to me that's the that's the more that's a promising takeaway because you look at some of uh florida's regular season um defensive metrics they were i think 19th ranked in terms of five and five shots against 20th ranked in terms of expected goals against 16th in uh in five and five goals goals against their pk was 23rd in the nhl this was a team that really didn't defend that well and they relied upon a dominant elite offensive attack to sort of outscore their um their problems in way and, and part of them finding their success in the playoffs here is sure they've been able to bring the goals against down in the postseason but a big part of that is simply the goaltending right and Sergei Bobrovsky absolutely going going off because even you look at the Panthers' defensive metrics in these playoffs they have they haven't been you know, it's not as if it, they're giving teams nothing right they're playing really well overall because of how well they're of how well they push pace offensively. But I think for me, that's positive from a Canuck standpoint because it's proof of concept of like, usually we look at, we look at this sort of narrative or this thought process that typically defensively oriented teams, because things get tighter checking and whatnot, that they tend to find playoff success more often than offensively oriented teams. And with Florida, they obviously bucked that trend. They're the opposite. So it's good to see a team that uh, is defensively flawed and has a top four with Mark Stahl in it. And even when you look at their top four as it's as it's constructed on the blue line, they don't have a, a prototypical sort of matchup defender that you look at and go, you know, uh, an Eric Chernak type, for example, or um, any sort of like defensively, defensive-minded Chris Tanev type where you'd go, um, you know, that's that's a guy that can match up against the opposition's best players. Because even when you look at Forsling and Ekblad and Montour, those guys are more offensively and, and puck moving and um and mobility tilted than they are uh de- defensively. And when you look at how the Canucks are constructed, obviously, when they have some high-end offensive weapons, you know, they have Houston Ronick, so a couple of uh, of really solid defensemen, but not a whole lot after that. Uh, big picture in terms of taking that next step, it's at least uh, it's at least nice to see a team, um, you know, with the offensively dominant but defensively flawed identity going deep. 
Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, even in the case of Bobrovsky, he wasn't the goaltender in the regular season that he is in the playoffs, right? And, you know, you could you could point to their goaltending as well as one of the reasons why they were in the situation they were. And all of a sudden, he's he's just gone on a big-time heater and is certainly a big factor for them right now, uh, especially since that Boston series where they were, where they were trailing 3-1. So um, some positives there for sure, but it just feels like when you look at the size and makeup of that team and just the, the overall consistency of what they're able to generate offensively, um, it, it feels like the Canucks might be a little bit away from that, but we'll see what, like, we'll see what it looks like, uh, with Vancouver next year, if they can manage to stay healthy and, and what we're going to see, uh, from a player like JT Miller from start to finish versus maybe just after the coaching change and, and things of that nature and what he can do, uh, and whether or not they can add that third line center that they're talking about and whether or not they can be just deeper offensively. Uh, one through 12 up front and, you know, to see how close to Florida they could actually potentially be during the regular season. Well, but, still, uh, we don't, I, I just want to bring up, well, they, they are still, you know, a pretty far, um, margin away. And the reason, the reason which might surprise you is we look at, you know, like Pedersen, Miller, Kuzmenko, those types of guys and, and, you know, how many goals in general the Canucks scored this year. And you look at them and you wouldn't expect the gap between a team like Florida and Vancouver to be this sort of substantial offensively, but that's what the case was, right? You look at the five and five team offensive stats this, um, this season. And so, for example, you compare Florida and Vancouver across the board. You look at, okay, shots for expected goals for goals, goals for. Florida ranked first, third, and third in those categories. Mm-hmm. Vancouver ranked 26th in shots four per 60 minutes, 25th in expected goals four per 60 minutes, and go- and 20th in goals four per 60 minutes. Again, this is not the two-way like offensive and defensive splits. This is pure offense. So even from an offensive standpoint, at even strength, yes, the Canucks have some individual uh, you know, game breakers, but as a team, they didn't have they they weren't anywhere near a team like Florida in terms of the sustaining, um, dominant, elite wearing a team down and just completely overwhelming them offensively. They actually have a lot of ground to cover in that aspect too. And from the Canucks standpoint, if a fan is looking for context and say, well, they were that much better once they made the coaching change, they weren't necessarily that much better offensively after the coaching change. It was in other areas where their team improved. Uh, and also getting Thatcher Demko back it was also a big piece of that. So it wasn't necessarily that their offense got significantly better if you're looking for that context. Let's get to a few, uh, let's get to a few VIP questions because a couple did come in. And again, we are going to do this again where we give our VIPs a little bit more of an opportunity to get a lot of questions in because we know how engaged uh, the uh, subscribers at The Athletic are when it comes to the Vancouver Canucks. So from the plumber, uh, 1024, did Myers improve his trade value at all by his good play at the Worlds? And there's also a second question here. But, um, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, the the minutes were there. We're, we were kind of debating as to whether or not he was actually significantly better, uh, you know, competition notwithstanding. Did anything change for Tyler Myers? I mean, we talked about how Silov's performance, does that change uh, the narrative internally or around the league uh, based on him or how the Canucks should handle him or all of that? Tyler Myers, uh, the fact that he did play a heavy minute role for Team Canada, um, does that change his trade value in the eyes of people around the league? I don't think it changes it at all. I don't either, especially because of the the competition factor. This is, again, much mm-hmm. weaker 
um, world's uh, world's roster for a lot of teams. I mean, even you look at, for example, US's roster, right? After Garland and Tuck, it's not a whole lot in terms of high-end established NHLers, right? So because of that, you have to take everything that happened at the Worlds, in my opinion anyway, with the, with a grain of salt. And, and I'm sure teams are looking at it uh, that way as well. It's obviously not, you know, it's, it, it's you know, it, could it give a slight sort of boost and at least give a little bit of proof of concept, especially for teams that, I don't know, for whatever reason, are uh, are easily slay- easily swayed by um, smaller sample international tournament viewings and consider it high stakes, really important games. I mean, maybe, but I don't. I don't think so. Here, here's the reality. What it showed us in terms of proof of concept is Tyler Myers should be playing against third line players. Yeah, I mean, it's what the world's it's what the worlds are full yeah. of, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's actually, you know, that is that is a fair point, especially if, um, you know. I mean, look, it'd be a, a pretty, it'd be a tough, tough scenario if uh, if the Canucks are are going into next season with uh, with him back in the fold, especially with uh, you know with OEL as well, you know, up from a from a cap perspective. But if that does happen, I mean, yeah, like part of the logic of being able to bring Hironic in and um, you know, hopefully relying on uh, Ethan Bear it, it, once they, as we expect them to, resign him is you know those guys hopefully playing in more substantial roles and being able to help uh, more appropriately slot uh, a player like Tyler Myers, who, you know, both him and OEL have played um, really difficult uh, matchup minutes going up, going up against the other team's best players. It's not as if Quinn Hughes' pairing is expected to do that. Most of that has been uh, has been leaned on. So even from, let's say, a pure OEL perspective, right, even if Myers is shipped out, <clears throat> quality competition matters. And I think, um, you know, that that's a, that's a fair point in terms of, you know, maybe these guys, if they are back next season, can uh, can look better in uh, in more sheltered situations. Interesting, though, that Myers still played a bigger role on this team than Ethan Bear did. Meanwhile, um, there is a weak free agent market, and there are a number of teams thinking they're close to contending. How does that impact the ability to trade players like Besser, Garland, Myers, and Beauvillier? Yeah, so I was actually thinking about this last week, funny enough, and I am planning to sort of actually do a deep, deeper dive into this trying to survey you know people in the industry about their their thought on thought on this because the the honest answer is i'm not entirely sure yet i think my initial like what i think about initially in my head is because so many teams are still pressed up against the cap and because there are going to be a lot of teams that have to move out at least one or two decent players as a result that the trade market just like last year will will sort of help um, help create a supply of you know pretty decent players that uh, that the free agent market otherwise doesn't provide. Um, but obviously, last last offseason you had not only a decent free agent class, but you also had the trade market. So overall, the talent pool is a little bit weaker in terms of trades and free agency. Um, the other thing to sort of keep in mind is like part of the cap sort of cap question is is not just on the seller side and seller sellers being forced to sort of move guys out but also from a buyer's perspective like how many teams actually have space to go out and 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 trade for guys have space to sign guys right you look at a team like minnesota i think perfect example right disappointing playoff for them eliminated in the first round again they need offensive talent the problem is you know even though they'd love to you know you know, either sign a guy or trade for a guy, they don't have cap space. 
Like they don't, especially after they have to sign a guy like Philip Gustafson. So it's like even a team that has a need for, let's say, some some of these players and might otherwise be in the market for a Brock Besser, a Connor Garland, or um, or whomever that the Canucks have that they might be looking to shed out. Even from the buyer side, teams might not have the flexibility to take take it on. So that would sort of be my worry there. And because of that, my guess is it the the dynamics of moving money out won't have changed too drastically compared to this past uh, to compared to last off season, but. We'll see. I'll, I I need to do more more digging on that before I can you know give a, give a fully informed answer. Yeah, and there was a report today that the cap could in fact go up three to four million as opposed to the one million many were speculating during the year. We'll see what it that would be winds up eventually. Nice. Well, yeah, and we'll see where that number falls because again, it, you know, this is that time where those things get speculated. But let's see, uh, let's see what it eventually looks like from Ella V ninety six. Three questions here. Uh, what are the chances the Canucks? Uh, what are the chances Pedersen doesn't sign an extension this summer? Question two: Do the Canucks still want to trade Besser? Uh, question three: How do you com- how do you rate Alvin compared to the other GMs in the league? Why don't you take one and I'll take two? Sure. For for the first one, in terms of like the Pedersen not signing, like whether or not he signs this uh, this summer, I, I don't know if you can really put a percentage on it yet. The one thing that uh, that I've been, you know, if you think about it from Pedersen's situation, and you know, hear about this also with um, with Matthews in Toronto. In general, and it also happened with Pasternak in Boston, right? Where if you're a franchise player, doesn't it sort of, if you have time, sure, from the team's perspective, you want to get that done as soon as possible, right? July 1, you're like, <laughs> if, if the player wants to sign, you're ready to give him a blank check. But from the player's perspective, if you're about to make a decision that's going to impact not only the heart of your prime, but also in a, in a big way, your quality of life moving forward, where you live, where you eventually set down roots with your family, that sort of thing. Wouldn't you want to take a little bit of time to see what direction the team is going in and, and what happens in the offseason in terms of um, potential moves? I mean, maybe less so for a team like Vancouver because there's less up in the air in terms of what they could do. Um, but I mean, the one thing to keep in mind is because of obviously what what happened with Pasternak, like that's a great example of you know sometimes guys want to take take their time and if a franchise player is being patient and doesn't immediately sign, that doesn't mean that they're not interested in resigning in general. That that just simply may mean that they want to take some time to sort of think about their decision um, because again Pasternak took that time and a lot of people in Boston were worried that oh my god are we going to have to trade this guy? We don't know if he. If he wants to wants to stay, and obviously at the end of the day, he ended up resigning long term. So that's just a, a factor to keep in mind if there is a scenario where Pedersen doesn't imme- immediately sign um, this summer. Is it is look? I mean, obviously there would be some level of, of angst, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, disaster is uh, is is looming. And as far as Besser is concerned. You know, I don't know that they're going to necessarily as aggressively try to move him as they did during the summer or sorry, during the season when the agent was given permission to get involved in things of that nature. But I do think that they still want to move the money and it's a significant ticket for two more years. So the term isn't necessarily onerous, but the actual dollar amount is. And I know that Besser finished much better uh, in the final month of the season. He seemed to have found something under Rick Tockett. 
Uh, he said at the end of the year that he felt it was the best thing for him that he didn't get traded. Uh, and certainly he says he doesn't want to get traded, but that doesn't mean that it's not the best thing for the Canucks to move him. So uh, I think if the right trade is there to be made, I think they will. But I, I just don't think you're going to see the Canucks spend a lot of time considering sweeteners now because they do believe they've got a bit of an asset there, right? Or if there is a sweetener, it's not going to be a significant one at this stage just to move that money. So uh, do I do I still see a scenario where he gets moved? Absolutely. Do I think they're as hungry to move him as maybe there were? Or were, are they as motivated? Probably not, but they're looking to move money. They they didn't necessarily prioritize that at the end of the year, but if the right opportunity comes, they'll do it. I don't think they're going to be expecting a hockey trade. I don't think that's going to be realistic for them at this point. Uh, it's just going to be, if they can move him reasonably and not make it painful, I think they will and try to take advantage of the opportunity cost. Uh, and Alvin, before we go, what do you think? How, do you, how would you rate him to this point? And I say that with an asterisk because up until this trade deadline, like this trade deadline, in my opinion, Harm, is the first time I've truly felt that Alvin's hands were at the wheel, as opposed to Alvin being in the backseat to Jim Rutherford. Yeah, we're still, I mean, it, it's hard to judge because we haven't we haven't had a chance to fully see how their plan is um is gonna execute because for like considering them considering how they obviously traded for Honick, even the offseason before. Resigning JT Miller instead of trading him for a haul, um, signing Mikheyev in free agency, like burning up all that sort of cap space in a lot of win now moves. For this management group, they need to find success next season. And so much of it hinges on the team actually taking steps. So, I mean, I don't think you can sit here and, and at least from my perspective anyway, definitively sort of rate him compared to other GMs in the league when we haven't fully had a chance to see how his um, body of work is going to play out, right? Because, for example, you look at, uh, you, you do look at the, you know, the Horvat blockbuster and then what what happens after that with using the first round pick to get Hronik. Like, the these really big signature moves, the ones that are actually going to alter the franchise, not only next season, but in the years to come, we have no idea how that's going to, how, how, that, how, how the optics of that looks yet, right? We haven't had a chance to see it play out in meaningful games. Um, we don't, know if the trajectory of the franchise has really changed so um i know it may sound like a bit of a cop-out i just don't think it's fair for for you know better or worse to sort of um rate um rate him uh compared to other gms right now yeah and and like i said for me the the sample size is small because I, i truly believe that it's only been recently that he's been driving and i think there was a time when they were hoping he would be a little more aggressive in certain areas last off season uh that didn't necessarily work out but, you know, I, I think there's been um, his vision, his statement, his messaging, I think, is more at the front end of the organization than maybe where it was previously when these moves first happened. But this offseason is going to tell us a tremendous amount from what the listeners' questions were with regards to, to certain trades and uh, and decisions that are going to be made there. But, you know, just also what happens at the draft, right? And and I know that Rutherford's been involved with building that team, but uh, Alvin's been quite involved with it as well. So let's see, let's see what decisions get made there. Let's see what happens in free agency, and then we can offer a better grade. Uh, a couple of things we do want to let our VIPs know, and uh, just if you're if you're looking for uh, other Canucks information, uh, Harm's got a notebook talking about Archer Silov's potential, uh, the Canucks backup battle, and three lessons from the NHL playoffs. Uh, also, Drancer and Scott Powers earlier uh, on uh, are whether or not the Canucks and Blackhawks are ideal off-season trade partners and whether or not a trade 
there. It could make sense. Meanwhile, uh, Shayna Goldman joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentili on the Athletic Hockey Show USA podcast. We've also got Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, and Mike Russo welcoming former NHL goaltender Devin Dubnik to the Wednesday roundtable at the Athletic Hockey Show. And hey, as I mentioned, if you're looking for great Canuck content or great content for any sport across the board, get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast. We'll be back next week. For Harm, I'm Farhan. Thanks for listening.